Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, what's up? I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, the host of The Bay. Donations keep independent journalism alive and healthy. And you support outstanding journalism when you support KQED. So if you haven't yet, check out donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts with an S. From KQED. Hey, everybody. It's Devin Katayama, and you're listening to The Bay. Today, we're going to share the latest episode from the KQED podcast, Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America. This one's all about why a growing number of people want housing to be a human right in this country. And this story has deep roots right here in the Bay Area. So I'm going to hand it off to the hosts of Sold Out, Molly Solomon and Aaron Baldessari. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. It's a Monday night in January, and I get this text. A group of Black mothers and their kids are about to be evicted. But this isn't a normal eviction. Sheriff's deputies are on their way to the house in West Oakland. I rush over there, and it's like nothing I've ever seen. Hundreds of people are protesting in front of the house, and everybody is here to support these moms. They call themselves Moms for Housing. They're homeless, and they've been occupying the house for two months now to protest the Bay Area's high housing costs. And their fight has drawn supporters from all over. This really touches a chord with a lot of people. There's a certain universality to it. I mean, you can't have a million-dollar house if nobody can afford it. Our community is sick and tired of housing being something that only rich people can afford. We're out there for hours. And so far, there's no sign of the deputies. For a while... It kind of feels like the moms have won. I personally think, I don't know if the sheriff is going to come tonight. I don't know if the sheriff even wants to come tonight. But that's not how the night ended. It got later, and people started to go home. And then before dawn, 30 sheriff's deputies showed up. They wore riot gear and carried assault rifles. And they broke down the door with a battering ram. (laughs) 
They came in like an army for mothers and babies. Two of the moms and two of their supporters got arrested. The deputies boarded up the house, and the next day, the mom's belongings, their furniture, their clothes were on the curb. The moms knew they wouldn't be able to stay in the house forever. And that wasn't even the point. The point was to shine a light on who owned this house, a real estate company called Wedgwood. They bought the house at a foreclosure auction, but then it sat vacant. And we are here specifically because we recognize there's a housing crisis in Oakland. We recognize that Wedgwood in particular, as a speculator, is driving this housing crisis. And people really identified with the moms in their fight. People who were just fed up with high housing costs. When I was there, I kept hearing the moms and their supporters repeat the same thing. Make housing a human right. That's a pretty radical idea for this country. Housing is not a right here. It's something you're expected to earn. But in too many places and for too many people, buying a home or renting, it's unaffordable. So it got us thinking about what it would actually mean to make housing a right and what that would look like in practice. There are a lot of different ideas out there, and you'll hear about some of them today. But all of them come back to making housing something that everyone has access to, like water or electricity, because everyone needs a home, whether they can afford it or not. I'm Molly Solomon. I'm Erin Baldessari, and this is Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America. There was a time when the federal government was in the business of building housing in this country so that even people who couldn't afford a home would still have a decent place to live. It's what we call public housing. And the original vision from the 1920s and 30s would have helped to guarantee housing as a right. We spoke to historian Gail Radford, who wrote a book about the housing movement at the time. She's a professor emeritus at Buffalo University in New York. She says activists wanted the government to invest in housing in the same way it invested in roads or bridges and make it available to everyone. And that means it would be owned by the government or by nonprofits. And so it wouldn't enter the for-profit sector. And therefore, the prices would always be affordable. The activists weren't saying that housing should be free, but they did want rents and home prices to be stable. Their vision was for whole neighborhoods that were close to public transportation and shops, housing that wasn't just for the poorest people who couldn't afford anything else, but for anyone. And that would mean uh, things like garden apartments, row houses, and that would make them more affordable to build, uh, more energy efficient, and more walkable. The movement influenced some of the earliest public housing that was built under the New Deal. There were about 50 developments across the country. One of them was in Philadelphia. The Carl Mackley houses, which still exist today, had a swimming pool. It had a progressive daycare facility on site. It had a uh, community room where tenants put on plays. President Franklin D. Roosevelt pushed for this idea of decent housing for everyone and even made housing part of a new economic bill of rights he introduced in 1944. It included the right to a job and education. The right of every family to a decent home, 
the right to adequate medical care, and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health. FDR died a year later, just a few months before the end of World War II. And his vision for an economic bill of rights and housing for everyone, it never happened. Instead, the country went down a very different path. After the New Deal ended, the real estate industry lobbied to scale back public housing. They didn't want competition from the federal government. The public housing we did get was only for the very poorest families. When the housing was first built, there were mostly white families living there. But that changed in the 50s and 60s. Millions of black families left the Jim Crow South in search of better opportunities in the North. Susan Popkin is a fellow at the Urban Institute in Washington, D.C. When people came up from the South, they were very crowded. They were living in slums. People were living in basement storage areas in cities. Public housing authorities built these big, new high-rises. People were really excited about them. And they had hot and cold running water, and they had heat and electricity and um, modern kitchens. But the problem started almost immediately. The apartments had been put up quickly and cheaply. Rents weren't enough to cover the maintenance, and the federal government wasn't putting any money into the buildings either. And things started breaking and falling apart, and um, the conditions deteriorated pretty quickly. Public housing became a symbol of government neglect and corruption. The conditions were so awful. They had flooding. They had the electricity breaking down, the elevators breaking down. It was really disgusting. Instead of the government investing enough money to fix those problems, President Richard Nixon put a hold on new public housing. He used a familiar argument that big government agencies are just bad at running things. He thought private developers could do a lot better. The Nixon administration began the privatization, the shift to privatization of public housing. This became the main way we build affordable housing in this country. Private developers get subsidies from the government in exchange for keeping their buildings affordable. They've signed contracts with the federal government, and those contracts expire after 20, 30, 40 years. When those contracts first started expiring in the 80s, building owners usually just renewed them, kept the buildings affordable. That's because the housing was mostly built in the poorest parts of town, so land was cheap. But now there's a new problem. Cities are growing, and those buildings look a lot more lucrative. There's less incentive to keep renewing that contract because you can then convert it to private housing and then anyone can move in and you can charge any rent you want. And that's exactly what's happening. In cities across the country, more owners are deciding not to renew their contracts. Experts say around 300,000 people could lose their housing in the next five years. But in Los Angeles, one group of tenants is fighting back. Coming up on Sold Out. That was from a rally in the spring of 2019. A couple dozen people were marching through Chinatown in Los Angeles. We are fighting because we need affordable housing, especially here, being so close to downtown LA. That's Leslie Hernandez. She's 36 years old and she lives in Hillside Villa, an apartment building in Chinatown. A lot of us here have lived in this building complex for like 20 years plus. So we grew up together. Leslie was a nanny before the pandemic, and now she watches her goddaughter and her nephew while their parents are at work. 
She makes sure they're fed and that they stay focused during online classes. Now I have to be cooking for them like every hour. Because <laughs> for some reason, kids are eating every hour nowadays. And she's become kind of the go-to caregiver for her neighbor's kids as well. They'll leave them with me. So they know, like a lot of my neighbors, they know like that they could count on me. They could count on me if they need someone to leave their kids with. We know that we can count on each other. But now that tight-knit community could be forced to break up. The neighborhood started to change around six years ago. All of a sudden, downtown L.A. was the new it place to live. And because Chinatown is so close, it got swept up in it, too. They started developing three luxury buildings. Once we knew that those buildings were being developed here, we're like, okay, things are going to change in Chinatown. We knew. But that still didn't prepare them for what came next. About a year and a half ago, everyone in the building got notices of new rent increases. A two-bedroom at Hillside goes for around $1,100. Leslie says the landlord is now asking for more than twice that. A lot of the neighbors started getting scared. A lot of the neighbors started saying, like, we're going to move out. We can afford it. The tenants didn't even think those rent increases were allowed. Their building was built with city loans, specifically to provide housing to low-income renters. But what they didn't know is that the affordable part of it came with an expiration date. And they had just hit it. That's when a lot of the neighbors started um, getting together and we started asking each other, you know, talking about it. Like, what can we do? Like, there must be something that, that could be done. So they started organizing. And they got the attention of their city councilman, Gil Cedillo. He tried to negotiate with the landlord, offering to forgive city loans in exchange for keeping the building affordable for 10 more years. But the landlord refused. So now tenants are pushing the city to do something pretty extreme. Use eminent domain to force the landlord to sell and keep the building affordable forever. Cedillo introduced the proposal earlier this year. With trepidation and with great sobriety, I bring this forward. Uh, it's a challenge that was facing us before uh, coronavirus, but will maybe perhaps continue. And so it's important for us to do this today, uh, to do it now, bring certainty and stability to those tenants. We reached out to the landlord, but he didn't get back to us. It's a long process to buy a building through eminent domain. The city is moving forward with the first steps. But there's no guarantee. Leslie doesn't like to think about what could happen if things don't go their way. If things don't go our way, a lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot of people could just become homeless. And it's not, it's not their fault. You know, it's a thing that they can't afford it. They just can't. As more people struggle to find an affordable place to live or become homeless, activists are saying we can't rely on private developers anymore to provide affordable housing. They're saying we need housing that stays affordable forever. And some political leaders are starting to listen, not just in L.A., but in Washington, D.C. That's coming up on Sold Out. Something unusual happened in the lead-up to last year's Democratic presidential primaries. The candidates actually talked about housing. 
The crisis of affordable housing is just an issue that we have not talked about enough and that certainly the federal government has not addressed. The federal government stopped building new housing a long time ago, affordable housing. So I've got a plan for 3.2 million new housing units in America. Those are housing. And members of Congress have introduced legislation to tackle the crisis. One of those came from Representative Ilhan Omar from Minnesota. She's got a $1 trillion housing plan. That's trillion with a T. The goal is to build 12 million new homes and apartments that are permanently affordable. The purpose of the legislation is to finally invest in housing with the same vigor not seen since FDR's New Deal. It's a return to that original vision for housing from the 1930s. Housing that the government guarantees that's a right. Housing that's stable and affordable. The idea is very simple, that we live in the richest country in the history of the world, and we can and we must guarantee that everyone has a home. Tira Raghavir is the director of the Homes Guarantee Campaign, which inspired Omar's housing plan. We need massive federal investment, and actually for way too long, housing has been relegated to state and local policy. People have said housing is a local issue, that's where the fight is fought. Hell no. Right. Housing is definitely a federal issue at the level of health care, at the level of education, at the level of anything else that is decided at the federal level. Tara says some of this housing could be built and owned by the government, but some of it could be owned by nonprofits, housing co-ops or community land trusts. This is housing that's permanently off of the private market. It's not like it can sunset in 15 years and then suddenly become market rate. Okay, but making those big changes and guaranteeing housing for everyone, it won't be easy. The real estate industry is still a huge force in politics, and we don't yet know how all of this would get funded. Public housing has a bad reputation in this country, so it'll be hard to convince taxpayers that this time things would be different, and that whatever new housing is built, it wouldn't be neglected. At the start of this pandemic, Tara was hopeful this crisis would finally be the moment when elected leaders woke up and began to see housing as a basic human need. Sort of felt like the ultimate opening to make meaning of how broken our systems are currently and forge a new and better path forward. But now she's not so sure. She says it will take more than the pandemic and politicians. It will take people. People like the tenants in Los Angeles at Hillside Villa and the moms in Oakland fighting for change. The night that moms were evicted from the home in West Oakland, it seemed like that was going to be the end of their story. But then the company that owned the house, Wedgwood, it agreed to sell it to a community land trust on the mom's behalf. Almost a year after they occupied the house, one of the moms, Dominique Walker, was back to celebrate with supporters. This is officially mom's house. I don't even know what else to say. I would just like to say thank you. The house will become a transitional shelter for other homeless mothers. They plan to have childcare on site and services to help them get into stable housing. It feels great that we now own the house and we're getting able to house other moms. Dominique and the other moms who occupied this house aren't homeless anymore. Dominique moved into a co-op in Berkeley. I know the importance of housing when you have children. I've seen for myself, like, the development in my own son. Dominique's son is now two years old. He took his first steps here, inside the house they occupied. 
he didn't have the room to do that before. Um, he didn't have a space where he could crawl around and take those first steps. Winning the house, it was the first step for the moms. California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a bill this year inspired by their occupation. It's aimed at preventing real estate speculators from buying a bunch of properties and leaving them vacant. And it gives tenants the first chance to buy the house they live in if it goes into foreclosure. But their protest was bigger than legislation. The moms got us talking about whether housing should be a human right. They became a symbol of our broken housing system, and they sparked a movement. And the actions that Moms for Housing took were bold and courageous, like the lunch counters in the South, like the marches in Selma, like the lone protester in Tiananmen. That is what this was. It was an act of civil disobedience to highlight the inequity, the violence, and the terror of this system of housing. Drive around Oakland, LA, and a lot of places around the country. You see luxury apartments that seem to pop up overnight. Tents and camps that appear just as quickly. And we all know that isn't right. There may not be one solution, but there are things we can do right now. Like the hotel owner you heard from in our first episode who converted his hotel into housing for people who are homeless. Or the modular home builders who are trying to make housing less expensive. Or the moms who occupied a home and woke up the nation. And all the people who showed up to support them. So what will you do? I'm Erin Baldessari. And I'm Molly Solomon. You've been listening to Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America. Thank you so much for joining us. We have a special bonus episode for you next week, made in partnership with StoryCorps. You'll hear from people about how housing touches all aspects of their lives, from where they live to the career they've chosen. And if you like what you've heard so far and you want to hear a second season of Sold Out, please rate this show on Apple Podcasts and give us a review. It really helps people find the show. And we'd love to hear from you about what you want next from the housing team at KQED. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Solomon Out. And I'm at E underscore Baldy. That's Baldy with an I. This has been a labor of love from the incredible team at KQED, San Francisco Public Media. That team includes the indomitable Erica Kelly, our editor and co-conspirator in the series. Our podcasting guru is Jessica Placek, and social media marvel is Kiana Mogadam. Our master mixer and composer is the ever-patient Rob Spate. Our podcaster-in-chief is the unflappable Erica Aguilar. And of course, this wouldn't be possible without the captains who sail this ship, Ethan Tovin Lindsay and Holly Kernan. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading!
Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.